Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. Hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. And we're really, really thrilled to welcome back a friend of the show, Professor Andrew Bottomley, Assistant Professor of Media Studies at SUNY Anianta in New York State. Uh, Andrew, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. And, and we're here really on the occasion of the release of your new book, Soundstreams, A Cultural History of Radio Internet Convergence. First, uh, congratulations on the book. I think we're all excited for this book to be in the universe, documenting, I think, what is a really important and vital history of broadcasting in the world and the United States. So uh, congratulations to you. You know, where I wanted to start, actually, is here we are. Uh, we are months into uh, the pandemic, <laughs> the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, for many, many people uh, across the United States and across the world, we've been, you know, sheltering in place. We've been mostly in some sort of quarantine at home. And recently, Edison Research, which does... Uh, you know, lots of research into radio listening in other areas, and they do regular surveys they call a share of year. They released a report that said internet radio listening in the United States and only in the United States finally hit the 10% mark in share of year, meaning amongst uh, kind of radio listening in the U.S., now it's got 10% of people's time. And I saw that number, which the radio industry has been sort of celebrating, especially the online radio industry, the streaming Paul, industry, which I Paul sort of can said I ask in. For, Paul, can I ask for a clarification on yes. that term? Is that radio? Is radio on the internet include time-shifted radio like no, podcasting? No, this, this is streaming. This is, just this is, live radio. This is just live radio streaming, not podcasting, not on-demand, right. live radio streaming. And, AMFM, yeah. AMFM, uh, and, and the... The industry seemed to be celebrating this number, and and I sat there going, I should know this, but boy, this this sounds really small. Still, Andrew, is this small? It, or and if so, why why is it so small? It seems really 10%. small to me that that ten percent of radio listening is online right now. What do you think of that? You know, I, I can be of two minds of this, being a kind of a, a radio as well as a podcast kind of historian or whatever you might want to call me. It is a pretty small number, and, and I, I am always surprised when I see those um, online streaming versus over-the-air receiver listening numbers that over-the-air listening is still so high. You know, it's 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 been – I mean, I think they've been doing – taking those – surveys since 2014. And so that whole time, this is the first time that they've cracked 10% with the online streaming. So I mean, part of me is like, my my heart lifts when I'm like 90% of people are still listening to radios. <laughs> you know, again, mostly, mostly they're listening in cars, I guess, is, is the big is the big source yeah. of that. And, um, and that's, I think, you know, obviously, the kind of logical interpretation is that due to you know, the COVID-19 and, and quarantining that there's less time spent in cars and more time at home. And in the U.S., at least most in-home listening is taking place via the web, you know, in smart speakers, because people don't really have radio receivers um, in the home as much anymore. So it's kind of a great number on the one hand that, you know, I think it's a great sign that like radio is actually still, you know, very widely accessible and, and widely accessed um, in the U.S. by, you know, in, a, in, a, in its traditional um, form. 
But it's still kind of remarkable that the adoption of streaming radio, yeah, has been so slow in the U.S. I actually don't know the numbers in Europe. I I, I know I tried to look for those a little while back, and um, you know, because Europe isn't a single country and all that, it's uh, there wasn't like a great. Yeah, you know, I have a number um, for the U.K. Um, you do, yeah. yeah. The U.K. Is, as of the basically 2019, uh, pretty much is around 13 percent of, oh, of so the not listening. a whole lot higher. Right, but but still, I mean, you know, uh, when you talk about even a few percent's a fairly significant increase in overall share uh, of of year, so to speak, share of time spent with radio. Right. Um, of course, in the UK, they also have digital radio um, as a whole separate service, which I'm sure, uh, you know, DAB, which I'm sure probably eats into that percentage a little bit as well, since it gives right. a kind of internet radio like experience but but over over the broadcast airwaves different than am and fm yeah and i i saw in that the, in that share of year um report from may um that same medicine survey also i i noticed that it was saying that spoken word radio so news talk sports um fares better via streaming than does music radio which i suppose makes sense if you're going to stream music in the home uh, in 2020 uh, or any time in the last handful of years, you're probably going to listen to a streaming music service. So you're going to listen to Spotify or, um, you know, or, or Apple or, or Pandora. So, you know, I think that's one interesting kind of like little tidbit that that was like below the headline was that, uh, you know, it, it divides by kind of category or genre in a pretty big way. And that's maybe why that number has sort of not grown as much is because music radio is obviously a huge part of listening in the car and so on. And when people get into the home, they're just not going to turn on. Uh, a, a, a radio station online, they're going to go to a music streaming service. Yeah, in particular, right, because whatever device they they might use for listening to internet radio very likely is something like a smart speaker, a computer, right. a smartphone, which has the whole world of audio open to their it. Their television. Right? Yeah, it doesn't, It you know, whereas their radio in their car, even if they connect a smartphone to it, which, which still people generally don't frankly uh that's what the, the research indicates that still the majority yeah. of people don't the radio is only really going to get radio or if they have you know satellite radio or, or you know a cd player maybe <laughs> in their dashboard i don't know that seems to be right. going going the way of the of the dinosaur as well but but, I, but I think you're right yeah tape decks <laughs> well you can't get a new one in, in, in a new car at least uh you know they're, they're pretty much uh, gone the way of the dinosaur as well but but yeah, I think yeah. I think you're right. Is that you know when you have the choice of on, on a computer or a television or whatever device you have at home of Spotify, Pandora, AMFM radio, and they're all relatively equal, meaning easily e- easily accessible. Would you take uh, you know the relatively tight uh, rotation, right? The relatively little uh, variety that's going to be had on your local music station, whatever the genre, plus a tremendously huge commercial load on the order of 20 or more minutes an hour versus, you know, something that's more, uh, that is more tailored Selective. to, yeah, more yeah. tailored to what, to, to what you want on, on Pandora or Spotify, even if you're not a subscriber. So you, you don't have the sort of complete on demand experience. We're and also you're talking commercial radio there, Paul. I am, but because I'm that's just what thinking most pe- about my own listening experience. Yeah, you but, know, I, but that's I what most people listen of, to. Right. Right. I mean, you know, you know, we're sort of the, I mean, we have to say we're, we're, we're sort of the fringe in that, you know, where our, our, um, 
Right. I just don't want to be sure. absolutely. But our audience, that, our audience yeah. is also a, um, yeah, yeah. You know, listening to community radio, appreciating yeah. the non-commercial. You know, just, I've been I've been devoted to a local jazz radio station here in Portland during during the lockdown in a way that I never was before. I I now feel like I'm friends with some of the DJs already, uh, just with a few months of listening to to my local non-commercial jazz radio station. Yeah, we I'm I'm listening to lots of stuff at the station where I DJ, which is a non-commercial college radio station. And we listen to other of our favorite non-commercial stations as well as podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think this like perhaps explains though you could see the with the coming into the home and people using smart speakers more and there's smart speaker usage is up during the quarantine. There's been other studies that have shown that like around like 35% of U.S. adults say they're using smart speakers more um, to listen to both news and talk as well as mu- music and entertainment. Um, and I think one thing there you see like NPR, as, as you're surely aware, has really been kind of like moving into the smart speaker space mm-hmm. in the past few years, like partnering with Amazon and Alexa. And uh, they also partner with Edison to do that smart audio report. And I think, you know, you can maybe see that that's where like NPR, at least in the U.S., um, sees uh, their kind of way to wedge into that home listening market that's been relatively low um, is is to is through the smart speaker. Yeah, I mean, we're definitely I, I think we're definitely seeing that even though audio is still sort of in many ways a minority usage on smart speakers is what the research yeah. shows as well that that uh folks are using smart speakers often for more mundane sort of purposes you know just to get you know the weather uh and although uh i think i guess getting like headline news is is a fairly a fairly popular thing but you know turning this back to kind of internet radio here Andrew Bottomley um mm-hmm. you know as as we've talked about before and we've talked about quite a bit on the show you know we're celebrating uh, more than a quarter century now of internet radio as a technology. Right. One-fourth one of the history of radio has been on the internet. Right. And yeah. and so it's sort of strange to me that, you know, in some ways that given that long history and, and the, the relatively wide uh, profusion of, of internet now for most people in our lives um, – it's weird to me that that only ten percent of radio listening is on the internet because I think if you were to comp- if you compare that to television, uh, the, the proportions are wildly different. How how do you account for that since you've you've been studying it so closely? Huh. Um, you know that's I think that's one of those things. I mean I haven't I haven't looked a ton at like audience behavior kind of stuff. Um, but it's that it, this is where you know I think radio um, has definitely sort of become more of a, a for a lot of people radio listening has become more of a background uh, you know activity than a foreground one. So when people are in the home, they're going to be doing like binging you know TV movies. Um, they're not really necessarily sitting around doing the kind of active listening that we right you know. Uh, associate with you know the golden age of radio and sitting around the kind of radio hearth you know um and so you know i think that's where you do see though that there's been a little bit of a shift lately right that like listeners seem to be gravitating gravitating more to radio um in the home just in the past few months with the pandemic 
to particularly news, listening to news more than even music streaming. I know I saw some BBC um, news uh, uh, report on, um, at least in the UK, that online radio listening had jumped um, 15 to 20% in the first few weeks of, of the lockdown. And actually, Spotify and other music streaming app uses had dropped around like 8 9%. Huh. Mm. Um, and so there was also like, um, I know that like the BBC Sounds platform was saying they had record live listening. I don't really know what the numbers were. They just said that was how they referred to it. But, um, you know, that's BBC's, right, of course, Sounds is their, their streaming audio platform. That includes both live radio broadcasting and podcast listening. Um, but, you know, I think the idea there is that presumably listeners were seeking news and information, um, but also perhaps like companionship. And I think in the in the long history of radio, like that's the main function, particularly in terms of the home, in terms of domestic listening, was that idea of kind of tap listening. Mm-hmm. You know, you you just sort of turn the radio on um, and just leave it on all day. And it was just this, particularly there was a lot of discourse in like the, the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, um, you know, early on in radio, um, particularly around like women in the home and also, you know, elderly or invalid people, people who didn't get to go outside much, that their main way of interacting with the outside world was through the radio. And they would just sort of turn it on and leave it on. And it was like this voice, you know, the way we talk about podcasting now as being kind of quote, unquote, intimate, like it's like, you know, as if you're, you know, you're tuning in and listening to a friend. Um, and I think radio kind of, it's, it, it certainly has still served that function for a lot of, a lot of people. But again, I think maybe we've slotted it more into the daily commute or mm-hmm. like at the gym or during very particular activities. And so we weren't listening to radio in the home, uh, on the same scale, at least, uh, you know, for just hours and hours at a time. Uh, and that's one little bit of, I think, return that we've seen, we're seeing in some of these numbers that are coming out um, in just the last few months with people now being locked in at home. They're actually turning on the radio in a way that they haven't done. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it, you know, maybe instead of also, I think some of it, we can probably get back to this later on if it's because it's a longer topic. But some people are just so sick of the news right now. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, they're sick of they're sick of like turning on CNN and, and you know, hearing the same kind of grim statistics right. and the same political um, kind of arguments uh, over and over and over. So I think there's in that way, like they, they might be sort of turning off the television and turning on the radio, uh, you know, and particularly, you know, maybe, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, kind of entertainment rather than news. But I-, I hear Andrew, I hear anecdotally people talking about working at home for the first time and and so suddenly they have control over their soundtrack in a way mm-hmm. and so people who are binge watching you know their favorite college radio or community radio station while they're working um so i've definitely heard stories yeah. about that too i wonder though you know because we're talking to some extent about not not the overall consumption of radio but what percentage of it is internet radio Right, you know, is it a is it is it a consumer? Is the consumer the listener the, the primary um, causal agent for that low proportion? Or I wonder, is it more on the supply side? Right? Yeah. You know, is it is it because of the fact that you know, as I would argue, and I think you know, it seems like you would argue that that um, commercial radio, which is predominant in the United States. Um, ignored or even viewed internet radio as a threat for a good portion of its of its early history. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, if you want to get into um, the 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 deeper history there, going back to the early 1990s. Let's get into um, the deeper history, Adam, Andrew Bottomley. <laughs> yeah, um, that's absolutely true, right? So, uh, you know, you have so internet radio starts um, in uh, around 1993. Um, I think we talked a little bit a bit about this in the previous episode, right? You know, um, it starts not from um, anyone uh, or any institution that's involved with terrestrial broadcast radio. It starts with um, the internet multicasting service and, and a guy named Carl Malamud in Washington, D.C., um, who's basically a, a political insider working on internet technology. Um, and he uses, uh, so he's a, he's a computer guy. He's an internet um, evangelist, basically. Um, and uh, he starts a radio station um, and uh, starts out as one channel called Internet Talk Radio. And then it, within a year or within a few months, um, expands into multiple sort of channels or streams or whatever you want to call it. But it's really like, and that goes on for a couple few years. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we'll get, get a little bit more into the sp- details of this, but it's around like 1995 or actually late 1994 that college radio stations start um simulcasting mm-hmm. uh their um their broadcast feeds online and then real audio launches in in 1995 and then you have a pretty pretty quick from that point on um a lot more simulcasting happening and and that's when the sort of the the networks the radio uh networks start to get involved although even there it was actually um not the traditional radio folks but other um sort of entertainment outlets like CNN and Rolling Stone and Sports Illustrated and stuff start getting into internet radio really more um, bo- the, earlier than a lot of the, the 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 big radio at least certainly like Clear Channel and the, some of those big radio um, you know networks. Andrew, back um, to the college radio. Why? Yeah. Why do you think that? So you know, you talk about how these early internet radio pioneers are really largely coming from tech rather yeah. than radio, but college radio was the exception. Why is that, that college radio stations were the pioneers as far well, as so, radio stations jumping in? So, I mean, college radio actually is is also a tech story, oddly enough, because um, most of the people at college radio who were doing the simulcast stuff were like, um, computer science students, um, and you know, and they were sort of they were they were both, uh, you know, a tech person and doing college radio, and they were like, hey, I could like put the college radio station online, and I can use my tech skills to build that, you know. Um, so they were kind of hackers. They were kind of just trying to hack something together, um, and as a way of kind of just sort of teaching themselves the technology that they were like learning in the classroom and finding a real world application for it and stuff. Um, but it's cool because, I mean, like, if you think about it, not to derail this, but that's yeah. kind of the history of college radio too. Right. Like that hacker mentality, you know, from the 1920s, the 1940s, and then in the 1990s. So it's a recurring theme. Yeah, like yeah. playing like like young people generally like playing with the the technology that's that's in the, that's at their fingertips uh, to do things that are that are amazing. Right. That's that was the spirit behind radio in the 20s, as well as the Internet radio in the 90s. Right. I mean, you know, to, to take a little side avenue into the college radio stations, I mean, because uh, I, I, I know, Jennifer, you love them and I do, too. Um, and, and we all do. Um, but college radio stations, I mean, are, are such a, a phenomenal little, uh, you know, unique experience, right, that they're these 
their radio stations usually, you know, sometimes very kind of makeshift, but often with actually like, you know, really they're legit radio stations with good, with good equipment and good facilities. And, and they actually, you know, sometimes they're just online nowadays, but other times, you know, they're like legitimate AM FM, you know, broadcasters. Um, and so, uh, but you know, they're run by college students, right? For them, you know, I'm at a, at SUNY Oneonta, we have a college station. I'm the faculty advisor, but like, we, we don't even have like a GM or something, you know, some bigger college stations will have sort of a professional staff person who kind of runs the day to day. But my station, I mean, is really just the students just do everything. Um, and, you know, I, I'm pretty hands on as the faculty advisor now, but like before me, it was someone who was in, um, you know, I think he was in uh, sociology or something. He didn't really know anything about radio. And so I, and that meant so there was some stuff that was kind of mismatched or whatever. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, the cool thing about it, though, was the students got to kind of make it all up, right? And it really was, you said, you know, you referenced play, like a college radio stations are playgrounds, kind of. And we often maybe think about it more of it's the place where students get to learn, you know, how to do radio. And so then it's, a, it's, the, it's often the jumping off point to a career in radio, and then they'll go intern or get a job after college at a, at a small radio station and then work their way up. And, you know, a lot of that's how a lot of professional broadcasters in radio start out. But they're also just generally a space where a lot of the students don't even actually go, they're not necessarily wanting to become professional radio producers or hosts or DJs or whatever, they're just sort of looking for somewhere to hang out with their friends and fill the time uh, and, you know, look for a little escape from their classes. And often, you know, most a lot of radio stations are, are primarily music stations. They're just really into whatever music genres they're into and they want to play it because they don't hear it on the radio or they don't, you know, or they just want to have that the, the sort of joy of curating stuff. So, but it's a, it's a place where they get to explore. They get to explore music genres. They get to explore, um, you know, kind of developing a sense of like a, a persona on on air. And 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 then also then and there's very little oversight, right? That's my longer. I'm, that was my long way of getting to the point. Like there's very little oversight. There are these great institutions that have the equipment and the space uh, that's supported, um, and the students though can basically do whatever that the heck they want as long as they don't like burn the place down or do something that's going to get the FCC you know do something really offensive that's going to get the ire of the FCC or the college administration they can kind of just fly under the radar and do whatever they want and there's not a lot of concern about budgets and there's not a lot of concern about like ratings uh, there's no concern about ratings, right? There's no there's no concern about money and stuff because they're nonprofits, um, and so that's the kind of longer story about why did this start? You know, first I mean it started first with this kind of nonprofit Carl uh, Malamud, uh, political insider, but then you know, uh, and and he was again not really coming from radio. He had his own agenda, uh, which was really trying to sort of demonstrate. Um, and educate people about the internet and internet technology and what it could do. So he was really kind of playing around with things like multicasting to try to get it out there to a wider audience, to try to get support both from the industry and from government to to move the internet forward. As a, Just a quick uh, aside, just so folks understand, multicasting is a technology which ultimately didn't take off for broadcasting online, but it's a way in which you can yeah. very efficiently uh, broadcast, send over the same stream to lots of, of people at a low cost, really the low cost for the for the person doing the transmission. Uh, the bandwidth bills for like a Netflix or even for a lot of online radio operations is actually very high. It's very expensive. And multicast was a technology that would have allowed that uh, cost to be shifted away from the broadcaster, um, which was, of course, uh, even more important 
or are more potentially valuable in the 1990s when internet uh, bandwidth was overall less for for just about anyone right. connected and also also very expensive but ultimately um it 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 didn't take hold uh for for all sorts of reasons that we probably don't want to go down to but I just wanted to clear up the technology so people would understand yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, service providers, right? You know, um, internet companies uh, hate it because it's more expensive for them, right? Um, using something called the M bone, which, by the way, I'll just add is like my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I become like a twelve-year-old kid whenever I study the, the multicasting. Uses something called the the multicast backbone is the M bone. It's so childish, uh, but I love it. The M bone. Yeah, unfortunately, it failed because it, there there are a lot of benefits to it. So we, uh, but. Um, Right, so you have, but the college stations, right? Uh, the, the whole, my whole kind of like, the, I think the thing that's really like great about it, um, in terms of coming from the outside, right? You literally have these kids who are just like, hey, I have an idea. Let's put the like, you know, let's put the radio station on the internet because I'm studying the internet and I'm really into it or whatever. And everybody else, like, I, I one of the one of the people I interviewed. So there's three, by the way, uh, college radio stations um, that really uh, did this kind of all all more or less at at once. So it's WXYC, which is um, at the University of North Carolina in in Chapel Hill. Um, WREK at uh, Georgia Tech, so uh, in uh, Georgia Institute of Technology, um, and KGHK, uh, which was at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. Um, and they were all kind of working on the technology at the same time. And I remember, I, I'm, I'm forgetting now, it's in the book, I forget which which one it was of them. Uh, they told me this story, because I did a lot of oral history around this, uh, because there really wasn't much published about it at the time. I had to kind of go and just find the people who were the students doing this and stuff. And they were telling me about, like, yeah, we were, like, at dinner with the other, like, you know, executive board members of the radio station, the college radio station, and it was like, hey, I have this idea. And everybody was like, yeah, do it! <laughs> you know? And then they just did it! Right, because no one was going to stop them. Right, if you were at um, if you were at a commercial radio station or even at a a, a public radio station, particularly like a, a you know a, an NPR kind of member station, um, you would have had to pitch that to some higher up who was going to be like, well, how much is this going to cost us? Right, you know, um, right. or or worse, uh, the big you know one of the particularly in com- commercial radio, it was actually seen as a potential competition to oneself right if you if you base all of your advertising and everything off of your over-the-air listening numbers and then you you know drive some of your audience to the internet you're actually potentially hurting yourself you know i think that Um, that competition mindset uh, was i mean in my experience in the 90s in radio uh was crazily prevalent a lot of places, including, in fact, yeah. community, community radio stations where yeah. at the community radio station where, where I was, you know, we, we went online in a couple different at several different times with several different technologies. And at every time there was always sort of a fairly vocal minority who were really, really concerned that we would that, that we would, you know, divert listeners from the over the air right. broadcast. And that would somehow ultimately in the end hurt the station that it would ultimately be a detriment um and i heard the same thing uh, from people in public radio as well yeah you know and again from from higher ups that that somehow uh this would this would all be the siphon that they could never recover from and it's a logic i could never even at the time uh, i could never get to the bottom of i don't know if you have any insights andrew of, of why 
folks thought somehow an internet stream, I mean, you know, from, from commercial radio, it's a little more understandable when you're relying on ratings. And at the time right. you couldn't, there weren't ratings for online radio. There are now. Um, so you couldn't count that audience. That's at least, I understand that argument, but on the non-commercial side where that's less of a, of, of a necessary uh, issue, um, why, why folks would be so scared of it? Is it just, is it just sort of fear of the new? Fear of technology is what I'm thinking too. Just that general, um, yeah. just to add before you answer Andrew, but I, I heard similar things at the station where I am that there were practically knockdown drag out fights about mm. going online and people really did not want to. I, well, if we're going to guess before Andrew answers, I'm going to guess that there was a culture of um, decline at all these institutions, like a fear that the future was um, was a lot less stable than the past as far as, as uh, doing business and keeping the lights on. And so any change at all is a threat because um, – because you don't see yourself as a, as, a, as a robust institution at a radio station that can survive, uh, you know, systematic change. Right. Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's a, a, a number of reasons, and, and a lot of them overlap, right? Um, I mean, particularly, right, again, I, we're mainly talking here about, like, 1993, 1994, kind of edging into 1995, um, w- with what's happening here with internet multicasting service and the college stations. And then uh, when real audio comes along, that starts to kind of make it more mainstream. But in those first few years, I mean, most of these radio stations, um, including even something um, you would think as progressively minded as, as NPR, they don't really even understand what the internet is yet. Most the majority of people aren't on the internet in terms of like you know average Americans, um, and even a lot of these institutions aren't really actively online. Like they don't have websites yet, even right. So when the it, when people start doing this stuff, uh, you know, broadcasting on the internet, it's mostly just well off their radar. Like they're, into, they're they they don't even really understand it. Um, and then when they do start to kind of understand, oh, the internet, I should be, we should be paying attention to that. It's not as a platform for broadcast or, you know, simulcasting or, or creating new content, God forbid. It's like they start to think of it as, oh, we could use that maybe as a promotional vehicle, mm-hmm. um, you know, to get a website. And at that point, websites were very static, right? Um, websites weren't, they, they weren't dynamic the way we think of them now, or they kind of constantly update. So most of what was done on the internet in those, in those early years was like, oh, you'd put the, the schedule online, you know? Right. Um, and you might shift some of the things that were done by mail to the internet, like, you know, uh, having like listener mail or something. So you might submit something and we're, we're actually really starting to jump ahead even to like the late nineties. It's like, oh, you'd submit an email or whatever. Mm. Um, and you, maybe you'd have a forum, uh, you know, so you'd have some sort of online forum where people could ask questions and there could be a little bit of interaction, but that was basically just offsetting stuff that had happened that had before then by, by letter, by mail, um, and so it was really just like the internet became a way of kind of taking care of some other kind of behind the scenes radio kind of marketing and publicity and uh, kind of community or or listener interaction stuff that um, it wasn't about kind of creating anything new. So then when you start to, you know, so that but then the so the question isn't even about 
thinking of it as a competition. It's sort of like, it's like, this isn't even something that's worth our time. What, what would we even do with the internet, right? Mm-hmm. And then when it starts to become kind of like a thing of possibly putting broadcasts online, like we've sort of said, a lot of people saw that um, either one as a, as a, particularly in the commercial radio, as a competition for their own feeds, um, worrying about advertising, wor- worrying about rating numbers. But it, and, and let's not delude ourselves, right? We all know this, right? But the secret, the dirty secret of like public radio, particularly like NPR member station public radio, is like they operate a lot like businesses too. So they're concerned about they, they're, those listener numbers are, are just almost just as important to them as a commercial station because that's how they, they use that data, at least especially today, but even a number of years ago they use that data to help raise money um to do fundraising um from their listeners you know they and, get to and say from oh, the cpb we, the corporation for public broadcasting will, will base their funding on on the, these ratings as well exactly so they don't want to do anything that might undermine that um and so and again it's like just a fear it's a general kind of fear of the new thing it's sort of like a like it hasn't proven itself. They don't want to be the one to take to take the first big, you know, uh, step. You know, no big NPR member station or NPR itself or Clear Channel or any of the big radio networks want to be the one to to make that huge investment and lose a ton of money and have a public failure that would be bad PR, whatever, 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 whatever. Right. So everyone's kind of maybe waiting for someone else to do it. Although I think the resistance goes deeper than that. Um, I mean, some of it was even just at a production level. I mean, there's some uh, there's some kind of anecdotal stuff that came out of like NPR um, about how just like in the in the newsroom and amongst producers, you know, they, in the in the early mid 90s, they were still resisting digital technology, period. Mm-hmm. Right. This was a time when. You know, we were still recording and editing to tape, right? We now in podcasting, everyone talks about good tape and stuff, but of course, that comes from actually recording on like, yeah. you know, real to real tape. And and so th- there was a resistance to sort of like any kind of computer digital technology in 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 studios because that was it it, it sort of threatened. You know, it threatened editors and engineers right. and all these sort of people and, and that the, what they knew and, and potentially they felt like maybe that threatened their jobs and so on. Well, and as, as a young person who was trying to get to do work in a radio station in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, it's, it, was, it was my impression that a lot of um, older people held those jobs, were planning on keeping them for a long time uh, and the, the prospect of getting trained on an entirely new technology and machine you know, at in the last fifteen years of their career was something they were going to resist, you know, as long as possible. Yeah, and they did. So it's it it was it was Gen X that had to take over and learn computers. Right. So I mean, it's the, the the on a number of levels there, it just sort of threatened the status quo. It was like, and and I think you you know you're right there before. Like there was this was a period of uncertainty and and um you know listening was sort of declining in some markets and and uh and so on and so it's kind of like you're going to cling to whatever you you know and whatever you feel like you do well like it's just like don't mess with that formula yeah so so even something as small as just simulcasting online or even creating a website um which was seen as like well why would we do that we're radio you know, we're radio. That's what we do. Like, why do? Why are we going to mess around with the internet? It's just like it. One, it could potentially be a threat, and two, it's just like a waste of our time. I think um, it's probably Andrew. It's probably hard for people, like, think about where we are today in 2020, and a lot of us are at home and on video calls using the internet all day long while we're sequestering during a pandemic. 
it's almost hard to put ourselves back into this period of time before the internet, you know, and, and we were all there, you know, I, I remember this period. At least the four of us were there. Yeah. (laughs) Not everybody listening was there. (laughs) Four of us talking right now. Um, you know, I remember being at my first job out of college and, and asking, you know, I really wanted to get internet access. You know, you had to make a case for that because uh-huh. it was not universal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I had the tiniest computer at my desk. Uh, so, you know, we, I worked at, an, at a major advertising agency and we had to make a case for why we should have email. Like maybe yeah. we should find out about this internet thing so that in case our clients want to have a website, we can explain it to them. Well, you're probably right. listening to us on the internet. This is Radio Survivor, and we are here for the love of radio and sound. And and though we are heard on dozens of community radio stations uh, across North America and and in Ireland, um, a lot of, many of these are low power stations. And so for a lot of their listeners, because uh, the signal strength is is not particularly broad, um, they really are tuning in online, probably in a larger proportion often than than uh, to full power right. commercial stations. But and, and one of the amazing, you know, I want to uh, insert this idea, Paul, is that because we were talking earlier about uh, local listening uh, during the pandemic and people are listening to their local low-power FM stations in the city where those stations exist on the internet. Right. Uh, like, it's it's still a primarily um, a, a local experience. You're, you're tuning in because it's the radio station uh, made by the people, you know, in the neighborhoods nearby where you live, and you're getting yeah, that. Yeah, the idea of local it's internet, a, I, I think, is, is fairly common now, whereas I think there's a lot of thoughts about the internet was, was, was an international or at least national yeah. phenomenon back in the 90s. But, but I, I bring that up to just to remind people you are listening to Radio yeah. Survivor, and we are here for the love of radio and sound and radio in all of its forms, internet, broadcast, shortwave, AM, FM, podcasting. Uh, we're here for it all. And we're, we're getting into the history of internet radio, uh, which has now been much more well-documented, thanks to our guest, Andrew Bottomley, who is an assistant professor of media studies at SUNY Oneonta in New York State. His new book is called Soundstreams, A Cultural History of Radio internet convergence and and really uh, uh andrew is the expert on the development of internet radio uh globally as well as as here in the united states and, and, and we, we've been talking about how um you know internet radio now as we said at the top of the show it constitutes about 10 percent of all radio listening in the united states by time by the amount of time people spend with it which compared to say say video streaming uh seems like a very small proportion uh, compared to like what the amount that internet video streaming takes up of people's uh, television uh, viewing time, even if compared to, to over the air. Um, and so that's kind of taken us down to kind of explore this development uh, of, of internet radio in the 90s and how it, it took off in some sectors like college radio, which which has always embodied the spirit of experimentation and, and looking forward uh, and was slower to take up uh, root in, in say public radio and particularly in, in commercial radio uh, where uh, it may have been viewed suspiciously or as Andrews you point out maybe which is viewed as is why, why why do we need it at all and I'm, and I'm curious Andrew if you if you could speak a little bit to to the fact that there seems to have been a tipping point in public radio that happened at least ahead of 
of commercial radio, where it seemed as though hmm. uh, NPR affiliates, as well as NPR itself, which, which, which people should understand, National Public Radio owns no stations. They simply provide programming to stations which are independently owned and operated around the United States by, by various different types of organizations. In my perception, at least, you know, it seems as though by the early, the late 90s, early 2000s, there was an embracing of, of, of internet radio. It was, it was, I know it was often a little controversial. It was a point of, of contention between NPR National, which wanted to move forward, and local stations, which were worried that if, if people could listen to all things considered, you know, anywhere on the internet, why would they listen to their local affiliate, right? It, it, you know, and I, and I think it, it, it probably a legitimate concern, which they ultimately resolved. But it does seem then uh, public radio was was definitely uh, more uh, ahead of the curve than commercial radio. Is, is, is my perception true? Is and and if so, why why do you think that was? Um, yeah, well, I mean that 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 is relatively true. I I, I do want to sort of you know put in that NPR. Um, and like you say a lot, obviously the, the, the NPR is, is just an institution and, and a distributor primarily, but um, a lot of their member stations, uh, which is when we, you know, most people think of public radio in the U.S., they're thinking of those kind of big NPR member stations. Um, but that a lot of those uh, were kind of still kicking and screaming or at least like whimpering and uh, flailing a little, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, it, maybe um, uh, into the 2000s uh, for sure. And it happened kind of a little more, um, uh, it happened slower and kind of more piecemeal than I think a lot of people might think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it kind of, it ended up being a, a, coming down to, again, individuals to a large point. Um, which is, you know, so we saw that in the early history, we have like a few kind of, uh, you know, individuals who are kind of mostly outside of radio, um, who aren't beholden to any kind of traditions, um, who just sort of want to experiment and fiddle around for one reason or another. Um, so, you know, with, with, again, with internet multicasting service, but also with those college stations, um, also with, there's some other things that come around in the mid Nineties, uh, like Pseudo, uh, which was a, a started as an internet radio station, then became a big online video uh, network um, in the late nineties, um, which is like mostly just like, small groups of people um, with usually one or two kind of prominent individuals, really kind of visionary kind of people pushing along, just like because they just wanted to do it, and there wasn't anyone to tell them no. Um, and so even with like NPR, you know, uh, I think his name is Richard Dean was like the first, uh, did the first like an NPR website in the mid nineties. And he mostly did it. Uh, I think he, he worked for, um, talk of the nation, I think. Um, and he, for like the weekend program and he kind of just did a website for like the one program. Um, and, uh, like kind of with the permission of his producer, but kind of like on the DL and it went online and eventually they had him kind of spearhead uh, you know, uh, having uh, the first like full on NPR website, and that was in the mid '90s. I, I forget the year now exactly. I think '95 or '96. Andrew did that. Did that full on NPR website that went first um, have a have a click to listen to the radio button? Uh, no. So at, at that point, it would have just been like segments of particular programs. Mm-hmm. So there wouldn't have been like live simulcasting. Um, but again, it was like that was like one person sort of did it and, and, it, and, it, and it, it kind of seemed to work. So at least NPR, I mean, to their benefit was, uh, you know, institutionally was willing to give that the nod once they sort of had seen a, a, 
uh, beta version of it kind of work. Um, but again, it was there was a lot of the the individual stations still weren't even online at all in well into the late nineties, um, and certainly not with very robust websites that had like simulcasting and lots of audio and things. Um, and again, it still was largely. Part of that, too, is because the way they treated the Internet, and this is true of commercial stations, too, was even when they started going online, they saw it as marketing and promotion. And Mm -hmm. indeed, it was actually the marketing or the PR or like, you know, uh, you know, listener relations or whatever they want to call it, like the the sort of euphemistic words they use in public radio, um, that it was those departments, the the public relations people who were tasked with, with doing the website. It was usually disconnected from the radio producers and reporters and the content, you know, makers. Um, and so, again, that meant that there was a disconnect between kind of what was happening in the online world of public radio um, and what was happening in the, the you know, the broadcast. And and so you, you see, though, what you start to gradually get, though, is certain individual producers who have an investment or just a, a fondness for, um, for the internet, starting to bring it more and more into their programs. And so like, I have a whole chapter that talks about um, in the book about talk radio. Um, and, and in that chapter, I mainly focus on WNYC, which is the NPR member station in New York City, one of the biggest, and now they have WNYC studios, they produce, you know, s- some of the biggest podcasts out there like Radio Lab. Um, and uh, they they were uh, they, they were largely though it was you know Brian Lair who mm-hmm. is a very well known daily uh, kind of news political talk show host he has a weekday program in the mornings on uh, still does has for now for for over twenty years um, you know he was someone who actually like going back even to like the eighties was on the well and on like in online discussion boards yeah. and he saw and he had started kind of a website forum for his own radio show like in the nineties and he used it as a way of sort of talking with his audience and generating ideas for the show. And they started to uh, do more of that with the blessing of WNYC, but it was really just that one program um, in the early 2000s, uh, starting in the late 90s and then getting it building up really strongly in the early 2000s um, of, you know, using social media and using the internet as a way of, of, of again, uh, connecting with listeners and actually bringing listeners um, into the on-air program via social media and the internet uh, and also sharing a lot of their content and also in you know uh, expanding the boundaries of the broadcast from beyond the two hours that they were live uh you know during the during the weekdays and actually uh you know uh, kind of uh, using um the the web as a way of uh kind of developing stories that they would then uh bring onto the air um, and, and so andrew, yeah. andrew in the early 2000s what was social media uh, I mean, we're still, uh, you know, I mean, they, they experimented with, with like uh, just about every kind of platform. Like message that, boards that ca- or things around. like that. But we're talking about mainly like message yeah. boards, like yeah. sort of message board forums. You mentioned um, well, I, you mentioned well.com and I think it might be uh, nice to, to let listeners know that that, that was sort of, a, um, that was, that was social media before, before the billion dollar corporations took over. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so th- 
the the point there that that the long way of, uh, I'm saying is just that you know you had even at a big institution like WNYC um, that did by the mid 2000s really kind of go all in online. It was still very gradual, like mm-hmm. that. It was particular programs. Leonard Lopate's show also had some stuff online. On the media had some stuff online. On the media, I think was one of the first programs to start kind of making their broadcasts available as podcasts, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we get to around the 2004 and the kind of podcasting moment. Um, and so, but it was, bef- it was, it took quite a, it took quite a lot of those individual kind of small scale efforts before there was a wholesale investment. Um, and this, and that goes to show too, I think with like NPR, and I'll just sort of say that, that again, you have uh, a lot of outsiders who are the ones really inventing the technology and the ways to bring radio to the internet. Um, NPR was supportive at various stages along the way of things like they partnered with real audio quite early on, Mm -hmm. for instance. Um, But they, so they used it as a way of getting their, so they were like willing to do these kind of partnerships where they'd have someone like real audio who's experimenting with simulcasting and, you know, audio streaming. Right. We should let Um, listeners know again, youngsters that might not have been there, that real audio was the first way you could click on your computer desktop to hear things. It it did not exist before that. And it was really a, you know. You know, it it was a it was a dominant on the public uh, technology. Internet, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the first sort of like mainstream uh, incarnation of that that was like you know readily available to the public. Um, and so uh, you know, NPR partnered with them, and they partnered with you know all sorts of people like like the very early kind of pre Amazon version of Audible. Um, where they would, but the, basically NPR was just like, they were a content producer. They were like, oh, we have these shows. We have these big national shows like, you know, Fresh Air or whatever. And we'll, we'll kind of willing to, uh, try to get the, you know, I think the one thing that, that going back to an earlier point of like, why, uh, I, I'm kind of going to sidetrack myself for a second. Uh, why wouldn't like public radio be more embracing of the internet? Be- and that that surprises me too, because when you think about what public radio is all about, I mean, it's about the public, right? It's mm-hmm. about because they're nonprofit. Their mission, what drives them, right? A commercial radio station, their mission is that drives them is is ultimately money, right? They're they're, they're uh, made off of primarily advertising, um, so they're ultimately going to be beholden to advertisers was it primarily but, uh, advertising in the 90s though isn't that more isn't that something that was developing hi- historically that it was take that the idea of underwriting as the primary form of of uh financial support for public radio was growing at that well time. it was it was um but again i mean their mission even with like underwriting i mean again this is maybe taking them at their word a little bit more um but the mission is the idea of of, of serving their the communities that they're that they're listened right. to uh in and so you would think that you know oh well any technology that comes along that helps broaden the potential listener base and allow listeners to access the programming in in more places at more times you think they'd be into that Right. You think they'd be. Uh, and, and so it was odd that, they, that that even public radio resisted some of these new technologies. But again, to NPR, to their credit, did experiment with various um, new technologies, uh, you know, going back to the mid 90s, like real audio. But again, they weren't 
putting a lot of their own kind of money or personnel into the efforts. It was somebody, you know, like Rob Glazer heading up, you know, progressive networks in real audio, who was really the one taking the risk and really coming up with the ideas. And then he, you know, smartly realized that to get real audio out to the public, he had to bring in big content producers. So he struck some deals with like ABC and, um, and NPR to get some of their content. Um, and then that helped, you know, elevate the, you know, bring the, the, the technology to the mainstream. Um, and, and so, you know, NPR was, you know, willing to go in on a number of those partnerships. A lot of them kind of fizzled out, but they never, they, they only ever invested in, for the most part, in those sort of, uh, those sort of outside um, exterior to the institution, um, you know, apps and platforms and things. They really took a long time to develop anything um, internally that was like an even a, a you know um, you know certainly I mean NPR one look how long it took them to develop NPR one NPR one which uh, is a listening app uh, that provides you sort of a customized stream of programming both from your local affiliates and from national yeah and uh, when did kind it come of a out? hybrid podcasting slash live streaming uh, application and and NPR one comes out of what year. Um, NPR One uh, starts in. That's a good question. Um, it's well I mean, into it's, the it's been, well into the two thousands. It was only yeah. It was it was it was only a handful of years ago. Yeah. Um, so it's like it, it, you know, and, and so you think of. It, I mean, that it's it takes that long for NPR to develop a sort of single all in one place like NPR mobile app, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of controversy around NPR one too because of the the issues with uh, local, uh, you know, lo- local programming and so on. But um, yeah, I think what's you, you know the the story there again is is one about um, people kind of coming from the inside. We're really doing the the hard work and the, and what we would call the innovation. Um, and uh, and then NPR was ahead of the commercial radio broadcasters because I mean, I mean, actually, iHeartRadio developed you know, an app and stuff, I guess, before NPR one. But I mean, the clear channel didn't even come up with what we could now call iHeart, right? Didn't really come up with anything resembling, um, uh, a kind of online radio, uh, kind of f- official presence until I forget the year now it's the late two thousands. Right. I mean, they really, really, res- they really held out as long as they could. Um, before they uh, before they were willing to really uh, kind of invest in um, internet radio, yeah, it's well into uh, right around two thousand eight is when they changed the name of the company, uh, right. which I think they had already founded the listening platform and app by two thousand eight, but not too many years before that. It was only a year or two before that, yeah. and yeah, the name change was a big part of the rebranding because yeah. they. It was the kind of thing where they waited till like way too late, and then they went kind of all in because I think you know there were a number of reasons probably why they did that, but I think they saw the writing was kind of on the wall. But I mean, they slept on it, right? You know, and well, and lots also of- think about you know commercial radio websites. I think have have felt very behind all other websites. You know, if, if you peruse. If you perused commercial radio websites a number of years back, they were super behind as far as really being more of this brochure-like website with the you know very static without right. much going on. So it makes sense that um, that having the audio component would be behind as well. Yeah. 
We're talking with Andrew Bottomley, who is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at State University of New York, Oneonta. And we're here because he's got a great new book out called Soundstreams, A Cultural History of Radio Internet Convergence. This is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Joining me are Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. And, and Andrew, I mean, in your book, you, you also, let's go in a little direction, you know, go, looking back at listeners. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because something you discuss is sort of early parallels between um, what some folks call DXing, which for, for real radio nerds and anoraks, right, is the is going out and trying to uh, pick up distant signals. Uh, you know, much of that happens on the AM band, which if folks who are experienced listening to that know often the, the signals will will go a very long distance, especially at night, but as well as on shortwave band, which, of course, is somewhat designed around that idea but it changes with the weather but it changes with variable it changes with all sorts of conditions correct uh and and then also then with internet radio all of a sudden now that uh the the horizon line of sight uh, the 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 variability the ionosphere and weather patterns uh disappear in many ways as as a um as a, as a barrier to, to listening to radio f- from from anywhere, um, you know, it seems to be in some ways that's that's we're almost burying the lead at, at how important of of a phenomenon that kind of is. Can you can you kind of talk a little bit more about about that aspect of, of internet radio? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I. Uh, I absolutely like love the 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 whole concept of of DXing, like which, as you describe, you know, goes back to the very earliest days of of radio and what we now like would refer to as kind of ham radio, right? Um, of individual users, right? Um, and uh, but DXing or distance listening, um, something that um, uh, Susan Douglas, the um, the the radio and technology historian, I think, is very famous for talking about in her book "Listening In" from from the late '90s. Although Michelle Hilms wrote about it even a few years earlier in Radio Voices, um, but this was this uh, uh, practice of these early radio listeners in the teens and the twenties, you know, listening in for uh, they'd call out and they'd also but they and they listen in for distant stations and the whole kind of experience right of was was trying to pick up like the furthest signal that you could um and this was uh and it was a test of skill too right it was like the, the radio list because you'd have to really play with the device to try to pick up these sort of signals build an antenna because, maybe <laughs> yeah well you'd build i mean yeah maybe people who don't know that history right i mean this is the era in which you built your own radio and you built your own antenna and so it was this idea of the hobbyist right and um, and it was also radio at this time is a is a two way device. You, you you the radio user is both a listener and a producer, right? They can call out to stations, um, and they can also and they can also listen. So listening is an active practice or whatever. Um, and uh, although what a lot of people did was they mostly they listened in and they would, but they would try to pick up you know individuals broadcasting from really far away. And this is where a lot of early radio practices then start to evolve of broadcasting because individuals you know would they started off just sort of talking and maybe they talk about the weather so they basically do like weather reports and then uh and then after a while they'd maybe get a little bored so they just put a record on you know so they'd like play music um 
but uh, they developed a lot of what you know, a lot of the different formats of uh, of uh, that we then that then got taken up by commercial uh, formalized broadcasting later in the sort of mid late twenties. Andrew, uh, but I, it, and I love yeah. the way I love the way uh, there was the postcard component where people would send in postcards to indicate which stations they have picked up around yeah. the world. And I know in your book you kind of draw parallels between that and people finding these faraway internet stations and reaching out in a postcard-like manner. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's what that's one of the exciting, you know, we talk about new technologies and um, new technologies are often met with a mix and this tends to go and kind of vacillates and goes in stages, but a mix of enthusiasm and excitement and sort of fear. Right. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, we've talked now with the, the people who were resistant to the new technology, uh, with like the, with the radio stations who resisted the web and online radio. But here we're talking about people who are enthusiastic about the new technology. Um, and so this is to bring it to the, the era of, of online radio in the nineties, right? It is a really niche practice listening online, um, for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, of one, I mean, a lot of people in the mid nineties, we're talking about like, you know, 94, 95, 90, right you know to have a computer um that wasn't you know uh you know a work computer or school computer to have like a computer in the home where you might be like listening for long periods of time tying up the phone line right tying up the you know connecting to the internet to tie up the phone you know you'd have to use dial uh, up you know dial up and everything um you know i mean this is not everyone right this is sort of uh and and also you know it's it's worth mentioning that we're talking about at least in the united states you know a particularly um, white upper middle class and and often very male um, audience who's doing this kind of listening, although that's not exclusive, but it, it is gendered and classed and and even raced in certain ways that are are, are worth at least mentioning. Um, but the the idea here is that you know you'd have you know going back to that whole like you know earlier point about you know only ten, even today only ten percent of people are listening online. I mean we're talking about a really pretty small group of people who are venturing online to listen to these. Uh, to radio online, which is starting to in the after kind of real audio and stuff starting the number of stations who are starting to go online is starting to expand again, but it's often smaller stations, community stations, college stations, um, even some kind of upstart um, internet broadcasters, like people who are just broadcasting on the internet, often individuals. And and arguably that's fairly undercounted. Um, when you talk about a big national type survey like Edison Research does based upon the, their methodology, um, I, I don't think undercounted in terms of massive percentages, but that it's it's hard to get at yeah. uh, by comparison that, that sort of, uh, of niche sort of listening. Yeah, and, and no, absolutely. And, and I just bring that up to say that this, like, to be online in the 19th, this is one of these things that's probably kind of hard to re kind of capture the feeling or whatever, but it was this sort of like exciting, weird thing. Right. Like it wasn't something that everyone was doing. And so if you were doing it, though, too, that that, that a lot of the fun of it um, and I do and I talk about it a, a little bit in, in the book and even someone like Mark Cuban, who we now, you know, sort of know the you know billionaire. But, you know, he started out in, in Internet radio with a company called AudioNet that then became Broadcast.com, which is basically an aggregation platform for initially Internet radio. That's where he made his um, fortune, other, right? Is he sold? That's where he made his Broadcast.com to Yahoo for some obscene amount mm-hmm. of money. Um, right and of course who's heard of who who knows broadcast.com anymore but who knows yahoo right now. you know yeah yeah right i mean it was this yeah yahoo shut it down more or less even just a couple years after purchasing it it kind of ended up being a flop but yeah he made he made his 
his first billions off of that. And, um, but you know, he, he's, uh, you know, he, he, I have a quote from him in the book where he's like, it's this, it's this sort of, this sort of exciting idea of like going into like the New York public library, you know, think about going into like the most massive kind of library you could imagine and just wandering around the stacks. And there's just like, just sort of pulling books off the shelf. Like that's what internet radio listening was in, in the 1990s was it was this sort of just really eclectic batch of stuff. And it just kept going on and on and on, right? You think about any one of us, even if you're in a big city, like San Francisco or Portland or Seattle or New York, whatever, you turn on the radio, you're only going to pick up a few dozen or, you know, so stations uh, on on the FM band or whatever. Um, And, you know, so and and a lot of people like I'm in a pretty rural area of central New York, I mean, I pick up maybe a dozen or so good signals. um, And very few of those are even local. They're mostly repeater stations from farther away. So for a lot of us, you know, our, 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 our range of things that we can listen to uh, over the air is, is pretty limited. Uh, and some of that obviously is just the, there's only so much bandwidth. So even in a big city, it's, it's jam- when it's jammed, uh, you know, you can, you can, you know, there's still a limit to what you can hear. You go online, all of a sudden there's no limit, right? You're getting every station from every city f- and then some that only exist online. Um, you know, at, you know, at least once it starts to get more developed, but even, you know, so the idea was this sort of like endless, um, potentially endless um, and very spontaneous kind of listening experience where you could just kind of flip around and you don't know what you're going to find next, but you know it's something new kind of thing. And um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of kitsch around that though too, right? For, both from the listeners and the producers because um, and we still we still hear this all the time today, right? Um, where like someone someone's doing a, a radio show and it, you know they're on the internet or whatever, they're getting like they're reading their Twitter messages and they're like someone from the Philippines emailed us, <laughs> you know? They're like they get so excited by the the faraway places. Right. Um, and it's kind of funny, you know, that the I've been on a bunch of it's even translates, you know, over to like, you know, now we're doing all these sort of Zoom meetings and things. And you'll do some of these sort of public events on Zoom and they'll often do the call out at the beginning. Like, where is everybody? Oh, my God. Like, you know, you're in Ireland or you're, in, you know, you're in Estonia or something. Yeah, there's um, something exciting about the pin on the map. And I've seen them in radio stations. Yeah. Where- you know, there are pinpoints where listeners have reached out from all these places all over the world. And yeah, it's exciting. I, it's exciting. And, 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 but to translate that to maybe little, you know, um, to put like kind of my, my kind of cultural historian hat on here. Um, I mean, I think the cool thing about it and what I think it really speaks to is this idea of community and like how radio can serve as this platform for community. And, um, and it's a sort of cultural process that reaches beyond the kind of the local and reaches beyond also the kind of rather prescribed, um, you know, again, the FM band, particularly if you're in a big city, it's overly commercialized. It's that idea of, you know, you, you know, kind of, you just spend like 10 minutes flipping through all the stations and you can't find any damn thing you want to listen to because it's, you know, so many sort of top 40 and kind of formatted stations, uh, at least with music and so on. And so DXing though, is this becomes this example of also sort of trying to kind of probe the bounds of like what radio can be the kind of, you know, more experimental forms of broadcasting or at least just hearing things that you don't hear every day um but it's also just an example of like i think audiences really kind of intervening in that flow of media that you're not just taking what's sort of that what's given to you you're in a way kind of creating your own uh you know and this is such a common experience now online with youtube and so on it's like rather than just sort of turn on the television and have to watch whatever you know even with 
200 channels on your TV, you're sort of forced to watch what they want you to watch at that time. And you're like, hell no, I can go online with Netflix or with YouTube and I can watch whatever I want, whatever I want. And there's that sort of uh, that kind of empowerment in, uh, that we have. Um, and uh, but all, but but back to the point of like kind of community, it's this idea of the I think the one thing that's really exciting about radio through all of its many forms, including even podcasting today, is a big part of it is this idea of this, what I talk about as the sort of the sociability um, and that it's this act of kind of wanting to open yourself out to the world and to bring the world closer to you and to try to kind of commune with other people and other minds. And I think the DXing thing is a really cool example of that, of this trying to sort of broaden your horizons and try to reach out as far as you can and listen to these, using the internet now, uh, listening to these radio stations coming from really far away, from Africa, you know, from Russia, you know, whatever, radio stations in other languages or certainly from other cultures. Um, and it's a way that it can kind of transform the kind of the our our everyday experience of the world and you can exist also you know you could get into like taste cultures and stuff too just like kind of exist in these imagined communities you know again particularly like with things like music you know you might be the only you know you might live in some like rural town and you're the only kid into like black metal or whatever but you go online and you can not only find other people like black metal but you can find like this like one finnish like online radio station that just plays black metal 24 7 you know and all of a sudden you're like i found my tribe kind of thing yeah absolutely well andrew bottomley assistant professor of media studies at suny oneonta um your new book is called sound streams a cultural history of radio internet convergence um it's been a tremendous amount of fun talking with you about about the history of internet radio and uh there's so much more to, to dig into uh, so certainly we hope you'll come back and join us again on Radio Survivor no thank you you've been so kind it's always so fun and yeah there's the, the time just flies by talking about this stuff it certainly does and if you want to learn more about anything we talked about today certainly you can find it in Andrew's book we'll also have links uh, to many of the topics in our show notes you go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast of course that's where you can listen to this show you can also hear on dozens of community radio stations and college radio stations around the world, really, or at least around the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and that's all at radiosurvivor.com. Um, we'd love to hear your comments. If you have anything to tell us, maybe uh, you have questions or you want to go, you've got some information uh, that you'd love to share, please drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And this is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To learn how you can help us do what we do, please go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. On behalf of myself, Jennifer, Eric, and our guest, Andrew, thank you so much for tuning in. I tried not to like overdo a generational frame, but I really see this story as um, the resistance to the internet. I brought it up once as being a baby boomer problem. I think so, you know, and I've definitely heard those narratives about when a certain technology was introduced to you. And so, but we know know, that Carl, right, Carl Malamud, right, was it introduced at work versus, you know, as a toy or a game? Yeah, that's a really good point. Exactly. So like, if, 
if computers were introduced to you at work and you had to figure out how to use this thing for your job, there could be more resistance than if you grew up with, you know, an Atari 2600 and um, video games. You know, it, it just changes your whole perspective on it. Yeah. Well, I don't I think see... you can count out privilege, right? So, right. you know, the radio engineer or editor uh, who had been in his job, most likely he, uh, for 20, 25 years in, you know, 1995, right, came up in, in a very regulated kind of profession, right? So even if it wasn't strictly unionized, although often it was, you you professionalized in a very uh, regimented sort of fashion. Right? You paid your dues. You paid your due, right? You paid your dues. You earned your place, right? Now, never mind the fact that, of course, the privilege, the whiteness, were, and the male. You were probably it, white yeah. and male, right? But so, well, it and was it's a craft. This- it's a you know, it's a yeah. hand craft that you exactly. take pride in, and yeah, and and then you are then this new craft that's completely different. That doesn't require you. paying your dues, right? That's kids who are just thinking they know everything and just doing this thing without knowing any of the fundamentals. They don't have to understand how this works correctly. You just come barging in here with your computers. I can imagine the engineers at NPR and their extremely uh, well-informed and and clear uh, technological arguments against the digital audio, (laughs) like why they're going to stick with tape, right? Through the '90s, up through the 2000s, no tape is still better than than. There digital. were tremendous battles at the BBC over accepting uh, video, digital video, and then what what cameras it could be shot on versus what it can. And there still are standards, yeah. right? I, I right. think we, we see this we we see this play out in in a lot of in a lot of different ways. I, I kind of and then look at and then look at 2020 where um, people are doing production at home, and so there's this different level of acceptance where on your TV news, you know, I've literally seen segments where um, the broadcaster is showing a video on their phone and that's being filmed and shown on TV. I mean, they're holding it up to the camera, right? Like it's not even they're piping it indirectly. Exactly. So it's, um, it's an interesting moment, I think during the pandemic where there's this allowance for, Using all forms of technology, it doesn't have to be the most perfect. Um, and and how is that going to threaten things when and if people are allowed to go back to work? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a big concern about that. I think you're you're going to see it in 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 a uh, in professional media, but also, I mean, I, I'm seeing this in teaching. Um, you know, and moving things online. Um, it's actually, it's, it's funny cause it kind of cuts both ways, but in a way it's like, you know, administrators, like, like deans and provosts and presidents of colleges, you know, they want everyone to go online cause they see that as being a way of getting more, uh, more and en- higher enrollments. And it's also potentially cheaper. I think they're starting to learn that maybe it's not actually cheaper <laughs> because, uh, but, but they, they were so forcing everyone to go, uh, to try to, to, to get like certified to teach online and try to push more classes online. And you see that, I mean, there's definitely this neoliberalism of the university, yeah. um, that was happening. And in a way this, the pandemic potentially is a, could be a, a real problem in terms of like, you know, now once everything's online and we and you see how it operates it's like it's going to be well we're not going to go back to how it used to be like we're just going to keep doing this like 
but again, they are starting to see some of the weaknesses of like you know they just don't have the the servers and things to support it, and also a lot of the experience that student experience is like clearly not um, up to snuff. And yeah, things. but lost hey, in the by mix. The way, are- is we're podcasting again, right? Yeah, we're podcasting again. But, yeah, but yeah. no yeah, lost the record statements. Yeah. Lo- but like but with like media, I mean I think you see like it's definitely gonna be like pushing more towards like backpack journalism and like individual reporters having to do all that work themselves. And like once you can kinda like yeah, facilitate it's like, oh, we don't have to do these nice expensive remotes all the time. We'll just get the guests on Zoom or whatever. I think we're but I see in podcasting, I think you're seeing that happen now too. One thing that's hap- that there's been some really interesting discussions actually like on Twitter between like uh, radio and podcast producers um, about how this is affecting the way they produce their stories because obviously the at least the major change uh, you know podcasting is a little more insulated it can be done more easily remotely than uh, than like television broadcasting but um, you know the, the the loss of like being able to do field recording. Right? Yeah. And that definitely particularly hits the more kind of high quality, kind of sound rich or, or uh, you know, kind of crafted audio storytelling kind of documentary style um, stuff. Right. Because the, the, they uh, that, that that relies on a lot of studio production, a lot of like recording people really well in really nice studios um, and also doing a lot of field recording, going out in the field and recording interviews and also just like atmospheric sound and stuff like that, that they've obviously not been able to do that. And I think like as much as with 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 the COVID-19 pandemic being in many ways potentially a good thing for podcasting, like listening is starting to go up. You're having a lot of new uh, new people come to making podcasts. Um, you know, maybe they're just sort of temporary interlopers because they're sitting at home. You know, you have a lot of these celebrities who are starting to do podcasts and it's like, are they really going to do it once film and TV goes back to work? Right. I don't know. But, you know, it, it, the one thing that, that I think is a, a good, bad kind of thing is that like uh, even in podcasting, I'm hearing a lot of acceptance of what we would otherwise call like bad audio. Like well, bad I'm, kind of- I'm, I'm actually going to pipe in because I can here because yeah. <laughs> I'm doing this please, professionally. Please do. Yeah, you know, uh, so listeners may know that I work for Stitcher, uh, which is, uh, you know, produces podcasts, monetizes podcasts, we we distribute podcasts. And, you know, I can say that, you know, from the moment, you know, of, of lockdown, you know, our two major studios are in Los Angeles and New York. And so, you know, immediately, you know, within a day or two's notice, uh, we went to all at home production. Right. Which, so, which for those locations would be early April, right? Yeah, it, w- it was basically yeah, it was really early April and a March really um, is right in that in that time period because I think even our leadership was trying to be conservative and 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 was and wanted not to be the last ones to to close the office, um, and you know one of the things our engineers did uh you know of course is to quickly figure out how do we pull this off and 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 frankly maintain a level of quality and and as a listener uh, i'll say this you know listening around to different shows you know i actually haven't noticed a a, a declining in in quality on on the whole uh, in podcasting we i mean we all know how affordable it is to get really good sounding equipment it's, well that was it that's it i think actually it's, the, it's a low bar to, podcasting to sound very good sorted that out in the last yeah. in the last uh five maybe 10 years as you know things like zoom recorders and you know um digital audio recorders became hundred dollar items and usb mics became 75 dollar items and people just started working out 
that the investments were relatively low, as, along with smartphones becoming more capable, computers getting better, et cetera. And well, and isn't it funny, Paul, how podcasters, I think, are the people that are really instructing a lot of people about how to do a better Zoom call. Right, of course. And, yeah, yeah, because they've had to know. do it. And even working out, you know, like we have here at Radio Survivor, you know, uh, how do we do a remote, a rem, you know, have remote guests and keep the, rel- the, 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 the audio quality relatively high? And how do we connect with each other in ways where, uh, right. you know, we, connectivity doesn't become an issue? And it's all the things that, that, that you know, mostly in, in, in in the universe that I worked in, um, remote recording was less common, though certainly happened with remote guests. But, you know, certainly there's a preference towards live guests. And for the improv comedy shows, you know, being really important for everyone to be in the same uh, studio together. And, you know, I, I think, you know, Andrew, you mentioned the sort of shows that, that, that rely on sort of rich, um, you know, sound design. And, and, and the thing that I'll note is that the, that, that makes up the tiniest of tiny percentage of podcasts out there. And often for a lot of people, they make up a large share of the mind share because of the, this American life. the role that this American life and radio lab and 99% invisible Cereal and, and yeah. serial have played in terms of popularizing podcasts within radio, a certain class radio lab of is, listeners. Radio lab is a very studio to studio podcast right. or, production right but it, but i have to note that this is really in the mind of only a percentage of listeners who who maybe are influential because they're members of a certain class um because they're influential because they may write for the new york times or know somebody who writes for the new york times or the new yorker but that uh when it when you look at podcasting on the whole uh, it's, a, it's a very tiny 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 percentage uh of it all um and and so the impact, therefore, is 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 relatively is frankly rel- relatively minor. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know. For I, now, I, I, you know, I I think relatively minor. It will still be relatively minor on the well, whole. I'm thinking whole, more about the economic impacts of the pandemic as we proceed in the year. Yeah, I mean, economic impacts is 2021 is going to change the industry. Yeah, I mean, in- economic impacts will be will have more to do with the economy in general than it has yeah. to do with podcasting in particular. Can I afford my internet? Right. Well, right. But that's <laughs> again, yeah, again, I want to, I want to just sort of say that that, and that it isn't to trivialize the economic impact at all is to note that that will be about the economy in general, not about podcasting. Right. I don't think. Well, but it's, I mean, it, it's, it's germane to our conversation because I think that there was a, anxiety about the economy in the back of everyone's mind of course during the growth of the internet and how it was going to change the media and what kind of threat that was if you'd already seen um, how precarious your position was at the radio station where you worked or how easy it was to replace you by somebody younger than you at the radio station where you worked. There's so many reasons oh, to yeah, resist of course. change. Uh, yeah, there, there's always that. And and the thing I want to note as well, we Andrew, you sort of um, you mentioned podcast listening, right? Um, which is mm-hmm. something which uh, at my company, of course, we've been exploring because it's key to our, our business. We we uh, internally we've received a weekly report, but we've shared it with with press so i can i can talk about it that that actually very closely track has been tracking uh how listening changed and at the beginning of of the stay at home orders and quarantines in 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 early april in late march uh we definitely saw a very a very uh, fairly significant decline uh straight off the bat and people it, wanted the news probably no 
or people wanted music. No. People's okay, peep the t- people listen while they commute. That's yeah, okay. what it does. Um, so their routines got shifted. It was the, and they, yeah. And, the, the the thing yeah. that we can see from that data is my work at home. Uh, my work yeah. at home. Uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, blind spot. Yeah. Since I don't is, commute, is that, I, don't have, I don't know. What we what we saw was that it was the 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 elimination of commute or the great great limit of commutes. Sure. Along with and not being able to go to the gym anymore, too. right? All yeah. sorts of things. Um, yeah. But that one is the biggest one. We can tell by just looking at the numbers. You could just tell because we we normalize it for where you are, your time zone, and you know we were used to seeing a, a very large percentage of listening happening basically in that six a.m. to ten a.m. space, and it like evaporated. Um, right. What we did see as well, though, is that by the time we are into um, Late April, early May, we saw what I, what I was calling um, on webinars uh, the new drive time. As we started to see the 10, p- 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., all of a sudden was a hump. And what mm-hmm. we were observing is that people perhaps were getting into the routine of their day or using lunch time. And that's what – to um, – to pick up on their listening, right? And so now we're seeing that that overall podcast listening has recovered. It is now actually a little bit ahead of where it was at the beginning of the pandemic, back when it went in, like, say, February of, of 2020, um, you know, in part because it seems as though people have recovered their routines to some extent. And not necessarily like it's always like it was, but they figured out where a new routine their habits go in their day and yeah. in their life yeah. and possibly some of that listening is spilling more over into the weekends whereas maybe it was much more centered uh during the week and right there's probably another phenomenon that it's hard to track without asking people directly right we can't just look at the listening statistics where as you mentioned you know andrew you've got you know new podcasts coming online people coming into podcasts uh, as producers celebrities or other notable people and which is probably causing some other folks uh to go to podcasts because they suddenly maybe feel like they have the time or the accessibility uh to come into it i'm certain that that again like you we said at the very beginning of the show that's probably behind the lift in internet radio as a share of of listening uh, internet uh, simulcast uh, being a share of listening and, and people going for news or or talk programming in there um, it's 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 you know fascinating to be able to to track uh, these things um, but as we're all you know sit here in it's we're recording here at the beginning of July and you know we have states who were all in on opening up and taking steps back in other states where they were more cautious, locking things down <laughs> with many of us really wondering, you know, when, when we, when we, some of us will ever be in offices again, or when, you know, studios will be open, whether they're television studios or radio studios or podcasting studios. Right. Um, yeah. I know somebody whose office, not in the radio industry, but their office is going to be closed until the end of the year. My, I have a friend that works in a Portland office that the first week of lockdown, their boss said, hey, we're going to not have an office anymore no matter what happens. You know, they, and they work in a, in a tech, at a tech firm in Portland. Yeah. So I mean, in terms, are, of, in terms of podcasting, we've had, a little, we've had folks in studios alone. Uh, when they need to maybe do, do use uh, some of the uh, fancy tools that we have, mm. um, 
or still going to pay the rent for now, or you know, a, a one person, a talent, uh, someone in front of the mic, and somebody in an adjacent control room, but that's you know separated by glass. Um, yeah. But that's it's it's not a daily occurrence. And right now, yes, there's there's no nobody saying when we will. But but to the point that we've uh, none of our podcasts that we produce missed a day or a week in terms of their regular schedule. And I can say, you know, we represent a lot of podcasts that we don't produce. Uh, they didn't miss any time either. Like everyone pretty much strength, sprang into, in, into operation. And I think, you know, the, because of, of technology, podcasts were able to continue broadcasting, so to speak, as normal with yeah. very little difference to listeners, comparatively speaking, compared to, say, television, where the difference is very obvious um, right. No studio audiences for you know the late sh- late you know late night shows people at home. Um, it's it's far more palpable and radio. I think parallels that podcasting shift where um, many community stations and college stations have gone to folks pre-recording or recording or or, or, or talking live from home. We talked to a bunch of yeah of, of, of radio stations early on in in the pandemic to get my that favorite sense of, of the effect. my favorite new community radio DJ at KMHD here in Portland, Oregon, who does that jazz show that I was referencing earlier, um, will often mention that uh, they're coming to us uh, time shifted the day the day that we're listening, but a few hours earlier uh, sitting in her closet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's 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 it's, a it's an amazing change. And obviously uh, there are downsides to this all as well. uh, Well, yeah, missing out on the the. Sharing of communal knowledge that yeah. comes from a from a collective workplace. Yeah, um, and Andrew well, mentioned community being so important to radio, and I think that's, you know, we talked to Ken Freeman about WFMU about the importance of that there, and yeah, and how sad it was to have to have people producing from home and not coming to the station. Um, you know, same with KFJC where I am. We this week we had to do two full days of pre-recorded shows. So that's the first time we haven't had live people in for an extended period of time. Um, and, you know, that's not that's not where those sorts of stations want to be in the future. They they want to be in a place where people are coming in and interacting and where you right. have live DJs on the air. Yeah, I think that maybe is the one. Um, I mean, it, it probably hasn't hit podcasting quite as hard as like live broadcasting. Um, particularly thinking about like, you know, call in radio. Um, I mean, there's a lot of them have continued. I mean, like I, I'll, I'll listen again. I'm in, I'm in New York and, and I'm, I'm, I'm long for a long time was in New York, lived in New York city. So I still live to listen to WNYC, the the New York based radio station a lot. And like, you know, you can, you can definitely hear (laughs) that those like Brian Lair or whatever is like in his kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It sounds, it sounds good, but you can tell it's not a studio. And also like there's a, there's a, uh, for shows like that, that are all about the community, like, like connecting with the community on the air. Um, and taking lots of calls, like you can tell that him having to, you know, switch everything himself. Um, there's a, it's clunkier. Oh, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't have, excuse me. <coughs> it, it doesn't have the, the same flow that you're maybe used to when, um, you know, he has 
in the studio a staff of of a half dozen or more um who are just manning the phones and uh you know running his call in system and everything oh so that he produ- doesn't of producers oh so he's answering calls in his kitchen as well yeah because actually if you go if you go on like uh, uh i think wnyc's instagram a few weeks back they had a series of posts this was actually one of those really kind of cool things uh they had a series of posts of all their different djs um of their of their main like daily shows uh working from home and how the engineers helped set them up with uh you know with with with, right, with but, you know good broadcasting equipment but like yeah you see like he's literally like in his kitchen with like you know a few different screen displays and he's having to do that all himself huh, cuz my cuz my friends who work at KPFA are home um but there is a the board op is going to work so the board op is alone. They might they might be feeding him some stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but so the he board op is to do connecting a lot. them to their calls. T- and- there's a lot of latency if they were to feed the phone calls to him over the net. Yeah, and then he's talking to those callers and feeding it huh. back. Right. That's how they're doing it at KPFA. There would though. be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it can work. It's not going to be. I mean, and I and I know. I mean, it. I actually, I actually write about it in the book because I get to observe like Lair a little bit. And like, I mean, he's someone who, even when he has like six producers like feeding him calls, like he's still right. he's so in command of his show that he's still ultimately the one. He'll take the calls that he wants to take. So I mean, he is live, you know, in in in, in real time, making a lot of that, doing a lot of that, what we might call engineering or or producer work himself. But like, you know, he had a bunch of people feeding him notes and things, yeah. and now he doesn't really have that or there's a latency there that's going to take away some of the immediacy or whatever um but i worry about i worry about something like that like that kind of community-based radio um which is very resource and and um and labor intensive um that's a lot harder to carry out i think over the long term um you know from little home studios the way you know a, a chat podcast or something where you just have like one host with a with one or two guests or something that's a lot that's a, that's that's a kind of a maybe a different story and you can kind of um do that and do that really pretty well with your pillow fort <laughs> in your you know in your bedroom or in your closet and using tools like whereby or skype or whatever um but i do i do wonder how it's going to shift you know some of the formats of of uh you know, this whole COVID pandemic, how it'll shift some of the formats of podcasting, like you were saying, Paul, before, like that kind of um, produced, heavily produced audio storytelling of This American Life or, or Radio Lab or Dirty John or whatever it might be, be you know, that kind of investigative reporting intense or just uh, or just sort of sound mixing intense um, stuff. I feel like that is going to take a hit because you need to get out of the studio more often or you need to use a studio with multiple people in it more often than the kind of chat casts. And you're right. I mean, that is a small kind of percentage. Those types of, of audio documentary productions are a small percentage of what's out there in the larger podcasting world. But it does get a lot of mind share. Yeah. Um, it gets and, a lot of mind share some, among some. Um, I, and, I, and they are some of the most popular if you look at, you know – I mean, they're going to sit Here, there alongside the Joe, thing, Joe Rogan right, yeah. and stuff like that. Right. You know, I think one of the things that people uh, don't always understand about uh, popularity in podcasting is that um, popularity in podcasting is still e- a relatively small share if it were, say, like rate television ratings. So even your number one show on the Apple podcast chart, which which does not measure raw audience. Um, right is not remotely similar to a top 10 
primetime broadcast TV show, even today in, in, in a world of, of, of right. you know. Narrow casting. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that, you know, more so than with, I think, television. Well, I can tell you, I know for a fact that uh, podcast listeners have incredibly diverse listening diets and there is not nearly as much commonality and overlap as people presume. And I can tell you that. Uh, I, I can't tell you the specifics, but I can tell you that because I've been looking at the no- – I was literally looking at this yesterday. But I've been looking at a number of different sources of this information over the last week or last uh, couple of months. And that you, know, you can say Serial was very popular. Um, everyone listened to Serial. And I can tell you that it that's not true. <laughs> it is, and, and I'm no, not talking. Course. You know, not everyone, as in terms of the the population at large. I mean, just in, in terms of podcast listeners, it, it's 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 simply not true. Not everyone listens to This American Life. Not everyone listens to Radio Lab. Not everyone listens to Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. They are popular, all things considered. But I can look if I look at a, a list of. Uh, what people have listened to, let's just, uh, you know, a thousand people, um, probably, and they all list, you know, their top five, 10 shows. I can tell you that the majority of the list will be singletons, meaning there'll be shows where only one person has listened to them <laughs> or tells you that they listen to them. That's really cool about podcasts. It, it is. And, and there was some research that Edison uh, put out uh, just the other day, uh, where they basically said that they said, you know, they believe that 49% of podcast listening is to what they call independence. So not affiliated with basically the top 10 largest kind of podcast networks, which includes like a WNYC, um, includes obviously uh, like uh, uh, Cadence 13, uh, Intercom, Wondery, Stitcher. Um, sometimes names you don't always hear about because you hear about them under a different auspice, but they're essentially affiliated with one of these large entities. But that's 49%, which are really, you know, kind of what we would call long tail. That's huh. huge. Neat. Yeah. I mean, that's really neat. That's really, that's, it's, it's really enormous. Um, that said, yeah, such, I mean, such a different universe than say the radio, you know, the traditional radio dial. Because know, there's, it's, yeah, it's we don't world. have, we don't have that barrier to entry. There's, there's no transmitter required. Mm-hmm. And, and in the podcasting keeps growing, you know the, the audience keeps growing, and and you know while many independent podcasters have worried, well, are are the you know the biggest uh, networks going to take away listeners to my show? And the answer is probably not, because your listeners are into your little niche. The thing is, your niche, like it is with Radio Survivor, just may be small. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it, and, and you know, and I think the same phenomenon with 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 YouTube or Twitch channels um, is there. It, as well, but I'm going to bring us back, uh, you know, because you know you were making this point, Andrew, that that with COVID in particular, um, you know, the, the sort of documentary style podcasting or any sort of production that that needs to get out into the field to record the fe- yeah the field recording shows because that I just, we'll I just want to emphasize that Radio Lab is is documentary style with the editing, but. The way that they record the majority of their audio is studio sure. to studio, so they are actually they can, can they can still stay separate. Right, right. But 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 to the it's, you know it's still a it's still a, a it's, worthy. It's point. field reporting. It's, it's gumshoe. It's the shoe it, lever shoe leather reporting 
a journalism style radio that's going to be right. but that's true for all of, yeah but that's true for all of journalism right yeah and particularly like community radio that is going having to go out into the community to find the people to talk to you know i mean if you're doing right sort of chat chat cast things and you're going to bring in experts and so on it's pretty easy to make those connections and do a call over but, zoom but also i think we're gonna but if you want to go yeah. find you know if you want to go find that farmer in your you know in your community who's being impacted by covid and you want to talk right, to them or the, the renter being evicted well right i now. think it's still happening though i think that that you know we're seeing an adjustment period right but Television yeah. field reporters, radio field reporters, our community radio station, KBOO, uh, had two reporters arrested the other night um, out covering uh, protests. Yeah, um, protests, yeah. They are, they are out and they are doing it. Um, and I, you know, I think that, in fact, in some ways with radio and podcasting, which, which when it comes to field reporting are basically the same, um, you know, th- there's a blip, but you can still leave your house. You could still, I mean, frankly, interview somebody in their front or backyard, um, you know, uh, and, and a, a shotgun microphone is right. ideally suited. Although that's uh, like new, that's new pandemic behavior at, in March and April. Right, we but, were, but we right, but I mean, I think okay that, that, that we're, right, as these things, as we, as everyone yeah. learns more, as certainly as medical science learns more about what we're yeah. dealing with and what, and what kinds of precautions um, are necessary or most reasonable, um, you know, folks will are I think already and will be will be carrying them out. And you know, I, I say this not because I, I I know anything more, just because what I'm observing really from what uh, media, you know, in, in especially radio, are are able to do. But right, it makes it much harder uh, to have that intimate one on one conversation in someone's uh, living room over tea, yeah. which, where where you know over the course of many hours. Uh, they begin to open up and 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 yeah, spin stories contact. that right that that they that they might not do in a much more constrained uh, over the phone. Right. So the or, WTF the WTF garage. Yeah. You know, to put it to put a you know that's that's difficult now. Yeah, you know, and 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 certainly, I think it changes. Well, things. not everybody has technology. I mean, this is one thing we haven't talked about. At, is the digital divide right. and that, you know, there are people who, you know, there are kids who haven't been able to participate in online learning because they don't have internet or computers. So yeah. there are people who are completely removed from being able to participate in some of these conversations or interviews. And, um, and if you can't get person on the street interviews, if the people aren't on the street, you know, they could be at home yep. without technology. Hundred percent, yeah. I mean, I'm seeing that you know, as an educator, right? I mean, having those issues like teaching audio um, production courses and things, and you know, students who, um, you know, even if they, some students who don't have internet or and or don't have a computer at all, but even those that might have, uh, you know, one or the other, um, particularly with computers, you know, as simple uh, and relatively inexpensive as uh, sort of podcast style audio production has gotten, at least if you're talking about like a uh, one person talking into a microphone, that kind of, you know, podcasting. Right. Um, as cheap as that's gotten that, yeah, you, maybe you can, you just need a Yeti blue, uh, you know, this, you get it for 75, a hundred dollars. $200 is not as attainable for some people. But yeah, that, a that there's a lot of people or the computer that they have isn't really capable of right. running, um, they, you know, Adobe audition or at least the better, 
production software and then getting that uploaded to the internet or whatever like that 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 those things that feel like pretty simple routine tasks for a lot of us um, are actually quite a challenge for at least for some of my students I saw that just mm-hmm. in the last few months yeah. things that I was like you know uh, I mean I, I have always was sensitive to the to the digital divide I mean I study it I I know but you know I mean things that I didn't you know or things that I didn't think were going to be a problem if students had at least a and b tool I figured oh well you can do it and there was always weird hiccups with sometimes it was you know and sometimes it was like our the college's servers being overloaded um, you know, and it would take a file, an audio file that should only take a few minutes to upload would take like an hour and keep crashing. And they had to like, so it took them forever wow. to get it submitted to me, you know, stupid stuff like that, that you didn't even think would be a problem ended up being a problem, not for like all my students, but for enough that it was like, yeah, I need to remember to not take this kind of thing for granted and just expect that everyone's able to sort of do this, uh, you know, very easily. Even having um, and, a quiet and- private place at home. Yeah. If you think about yeah. kids who are back at home with their entire family, there might not even be a place that they can go to be alone. They might not even have their own computer. The household might have one computer that's shared Sharing. amongst people. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's good to remember all of that. I, w- I will say I'm curious. I'm curious, uh, you know, coming out of this, and I'm sure we've all been you know, sort of uh, seeing and hearing this in our own listening or just what are kind of our, our, our personal networks of like, what types of programs um, are going to become more popular or are already becoming more popular um, in the pandemic? I definitely see like people's diets for podcasts are shifting a bit. You know, I mean, we have, for instance, like, you know, on the one hand, the the whole coronavirus pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic has seen a ton of these sort of, uh, rapid response kind of daily news shows like there's all these coronavirus pandemic podcasts out there um and and also there was already a trend in the daily news you know uh podcasts with you know up first and the and you know new york times the daily and everything but then i've also seen and heard from a lot of people um you know in different forums and just people in my own world that a lot of people are like sick of the news and they don't want that out of podcasting so what they're searching for in podcasting is you know more of the you know, self-help and meditation podcasts or like, you know, it's this, this sort of psychology, personal improvement things. Um, or, you know, these aren't, some of these podcasts are brand new. Other are ones that have been around, you know, um, podcasts that deal with spirituality, right? Like the happiness lab or podcasts that deal with philosophy, like on being like people are looking to podcasting as an escape from that 24 seven kind of cable news cycle. And so that they, they're trying to find podcasts that give them sort of something different. We, yeah. Um, we, you know, we do hear that. We, I mean, you know, in particularly the, you know, we uh, podcasting is an escape, and we've heard that all along. Uh, you the know, Trump era, pre, all along. Yeah. Period. Period. All along. Period. Um, so I don't think that there's nothing new there, and you know, I'm I'm always cautious about all of this anecdotal information from drawing trends from that. Sure. Right. For the, for the, you know, kind of going back to the evidence I shared before, right, where people's listening isn't as overlapped as you think it is. The most popular shows are, as a share of listening time, not as popular as you think they are, right? That, you know, coverage in the press does not necessarily equate to popularity. It equates to popularity with people who are in the press. 
right. as well, well as the the charts, right? The the the, the Apple iTunes charts right. are the most accessible and visible form right. of measuring success, and we don't know what the numbers of Right, anything right. are on those charts. Exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, I know some of them, but I yeah, don't know we. all of them. When, and when I, can't I say share we, them. I'm not including Paul Rees. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and 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 so what's interesting to me is that yes, I think that you. That, there are also trends in content creation. You can think about it that way. That right. There's. It might be during and, the pandemic, um, and during Black Lives Matter. It might be that we're producing more content around certain topics, and then we might get yeah. the impression that that people are drawn to that. You know, I would also add that, you know, with, with some people considering that they've reverted to homeschooling, there might also be a desire for how to type of media. And what we're seeing, I think is, is really, I I would put out there is, 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 is a metaphor that we've, that we've used in the podcast industry for a very long time, which is it's a rising tide is lifting all boats. There don't really seem to be any losers (laughs) <laughs> frankly um we seem in that that listeners are, are are coming into into podcasting and that's where uh, fuels a lot of the growth less so than say people shifting their listening habits uh folks are pretty loyal frankly once they're hooked onto their onto podcasts they tend to be pretty loyal to their top shows yeah things shift in and out of course everyone's taste changes as they do in a, everything else but when it comes to say podcasts that are um continual series right that are not necessarily seasoned so it's not like there's six episodes and it goes away but for things that release on a fairly continuous cycle people tend tend to stick with them there's always some churn but it's it's not a lot just as a general listening trend no matter what the show is and so i think what we're seeing is that certainly people are coming into podcasts and new listeners will may have different desires and uh, taste than the existing listeners because those new listeners are more likely to be young, they're more likely to be women, they're more likely to be black or people of color. Hmm. And that's introducing uh, a whole new, uh, you know, and, and, and they also are, are, are also more likely to be older, right? So we also have an increase of people who are 50 years plus coming into podcasts. We have an increase of people who are not um, – middle class and upper middle class coming into podcasts, right? Who are not white collar coming into podcasts. So that is sort of shifting, shifting things up um, as well. And it's all happened. All of this is happening at the same time, (laughs) right? These are not, uh, these are not um, discrete phenomenon. We cannot separate the pandemic from the influx of listeners who come in because uh, you know, personality that they follow is now a podcaster or because there's now a podcast that that catches their interest that didn't exist before um you know i think it's 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 i think it's 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 a very very sort of spread out phenomenon but as of yet right i what's great about it is it's not a zero-sum game so as we say i think it's true you say mentioned to Andrew that you know so shows that kind of are, are focused on uh, personal wellness, uh, meditation, spirituality. They're seeing increases, but they're not seeing increases at the expense of some other category, genre, or show. Right. You know, it, it is because in some ways, uh, maybe people are shifting their habits, but also their listeners coming to podcasts because they've learned that there's content of that sort out there for them. Um, that uh, that they're interested in, um, you know, and and with luck, you know, I mean, as 
this continues to grow. This, you know, it's a phenomenon that continues to grow. And to me, the good news is that it also means that podcasting, in terms of both audiences and crucially producers, is becoming more diverse, looking more like, you know, the country at the very least, uh, and not only the the province of you know relatively educated white upper middle class people who live in major uh, population centers which is where really i think you know for a long time that i think that was relatively true of the listenership and then for a longer time has dominated people's perception of podcasting and that certainly hasn't been helped by uh, you know, it's representation in, in the popular press and popular culture because uh, that is, you know, overwhelmingly the class of people who still write and produce most media. Yeah, I was I was curious, like when you were talking about some of the numbers early on, about 10 percent of of listening is streaming. Um, I was curious if that was broken down by urban versus rural areas no it's um, yeah it unfortunately the i think the survey's too small to do that because often those numbers surprise us and you know i think of myself i always remind myself i live in san francisco in a tech heavy area so a lot of things that seem surprising shouldn't really seem surprising if i take a broader view of the entire country you know beyond beyond the san francisco bubble well, you live in central New York, uh, Andrew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, Oneonta is not a not a big city, correct? I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a city. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, for the region, it's 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 a it's a larger population center. But no, I mean, it's like fifteen thousand people or something. Like yeah. That, do you, you know do I mean? you? It's, I mean, you know, someone who you know has lived in New York City lives in Oneonta. You know, do you? Is is that divide between sort of large metropolis and sort of smaller college town? Do do you do you perceive uh, that difference in use uh, for people using internet radio or uh, or podcasting for that matter? Oh yeah, I mean you know, I mean you're dealing well. One, I mean you're, I do live in an area where like if I go just a mile or so out of town you know there's a lot of places where there's no cell service you know you're in the we're in the mountains too pretty much mm-hmm. um you know there's a lot of communities around here that don't have internet or have you know essentially you know uh, uh, uh what we would think of as a pretty primitive you know version of broadband um you know and so it, it, there's you know, connectivity is a big issue. I mean, I certainly have students who come from other parts of like even more rural New York um, who, you know, don't have internet at home, period. Mm-hmm. Like they just, they live, you know. So like online radio listening, it's just like, it's not a thing. It doesn't exist, you know. And, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, what there is around here, you know, if I, you know, I still encounter people, more local people, right, who are like, you know, you remember how those surveys used to be, maybe they still even are but like the edison service used to be like who had heard of the word podcast basically yes like you know <laughs> like the success of podcasting was like people know it's a thing yeah, that's true that's right. <laughs> right that's right when once it crossed like, that majority line everyone celebrated yeah right and like so i mean i still meet people and a lot of times this is, this is you know people who are are live in more rural communities but also p- older people too who who like 
they're like, oh yeah, I've 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 heard of podcasts, like you know, like and and like that's like, but they don't know what that means, you know, they don't mm-hmm. really know how to listen to them, they don't really know any podcasts, you know, or or even with my students who are coming mainly from the suburbs, New York City or its suburbs, like a lot of them still don't listen to podcasts. If they do, they listen to radio that's podcasted. And then I have to get into this like nitpicky argument. Right. About, right. Like, They're yeah, listening to know, Elvis like, Duran you know, time shifted, <laughs> you know, um, or, or they listen to, I think what it's kind of come up a few times now, like they'll listen to a few very specific things. And it's mostly because some YouTuber they really like also has a podcast. Mm. And so, you know, and so all the things that I think of as being foundational podcasts, like, you know, whether it's, serial or even something like you know well they do all know joe rogan unfortunately right but um (laughs) you know but like that's like you know even something like marin or whatever right like they have no idea they have no idea what i'm talking about right like they just listen to like david dobler or whatever that guy is you know or uh um and so so so, you know i deal i guess the, the long way of saying that you know that that uh i definitely deal with people who are like you know, their experience of audio, if we want to just sort of like use the umbrella is like, is still basically over the air radio. And for them in this region, that basically doesn't exist. We have a couple, only a couple few radio stations that originate out of Oneonta, which again is a pretty big regional center. You know, we're kind of flanked by bigger cities that are all about an hour away, Albany to our East, Binghamton to our West, Syracuse to about an about hour and a half, two hours to our north. Um, that, you know, that for here, like we have, there's a town square media, which you might know, mm-hmm. right? Sort of radio syndicator. Their whole business model is to buy up small radio stations in more, you know, smaller markets. And then it's, you know, formatted radio. There's like kind of the, 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 the classic rock station and like the country station, you know, the kind of the top 40 station. And that's all we get that's quote unquote local. But there's actually like, there's like a DJ yeah. who, you know, in, in, you know, it's like, it's not, a, there's very little. And then there's like a low power FM church, like radio station on the edge of town, you know, and most of what we hear is coming from, those bigger cities around us that's being repeated. Um, you know, so even our public, you know, we don't even have a public radio station that comes out of here anymore. Um, you know, we have the college station and there's actually two college stations, There's another smaller college called Hartwick and then there's Sonianta. But then it's like, most people don't even really listen to that stuff. You know, like they'll, they'll listen to just that kind of, the classic rock station, you know, um, and, the, and the, but they don't even know where it's coming from. It's just sort of like radio is that thing that you turn on, you hear a little Led Zeppelin, you're happy, <laughs> you turn it off, right? Like they're not, they're not the kind of people though that think about radio as this thing that you're going to kind of seek out, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm talking about people here are more like middle-aged and maybe a little above, but like, um, I've talked to enough of them, you know, to people who contractors and neighbors and things. And, you know, and it's like, they, they don't, they're the whole world of like podcasts or online radio as this adventurous kind of thing where you can explore your tastes and hear all sorts of new ideas. It's it's, it just doesn't exist. It is very closed off. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. I know Jennifer, you need to go. Uh, the printer may make sounds momentarily. (laughs) That's very good. And by the printer that the child needs. Thank you again, Andrew. It's always a delight. uh, Fun talking with you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Andrew.